Hello, and welcome to the podcast, where we have a positive conversation about our pets and the people who love them. I am your co-host, Jean. And I'm your co-host, Karen. And we are so excited about our guests today. We have two friends of ours who are part of an organization called um, White Coat Waste. It is a taxpayer watchdog that fights government-funded animal testing. And spirit of full disclosure, Jean and I have both done some work on behalf of White Coat Waste over the past several years, which is how we've gotten to know our friends Julie Germany, who identifies herself as Violet's mom and a board member of White Coat Waste, and Justin Goodman, who's a vice president for advocacy and public affairs for the organization. So welcome both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So there's um, a, a, a unique distinction that PAWSGO has, and it's going to segue into our first bit of our conversation, and that is the PAWSGO blog was the first, um, we'll call it entity, that profiled Julie's dog, Violet, and Violet was um, rescued from a laboratory. So, Julie, can you tell us a little bit what it's like to be Violet's mom and maybe <laughs> weave in Bert's um because Bert's the big hero yes. in all of this. Yes, of course, Bert. And now so many more um, cats like Bert have entered Violet's life. Violet is a hound dog. She's six years old. Um, she has russet-colored dappling and the softest, most velveteen ears you will ever feel and the wettest nose that will ever brush up against your leg or your hand. She spent the first year of her life in an animal testing lab in the basement in a cage until we rescued her. She'd never been outside. She'd never felt the wind before. Wind scared the heck out of her for months, years even after we rescued her. She'd never played in the grass. When I first met Violet, she was so afraid of people, she couldn't engage with me as another human. I um, spent time volunteering in an animal testing lab, and I would take Violet and her fellow dogs who were being experimented on out of their cages and play with them in a basement hallway with dog toys. How did and you get to do that? I volunteered. And the lab said yes? And the lab said yes. Um, labs do look um, for ways to provide what they call enrichment to the animals that they're testing on. Um, it's a good way to get bonus points from the government, for example. Um, if you're trying to get more grant money from the government, it shows that you know the animals aren't sitting bored in cages all day. So I'd go and play with the dogs, and Violet couldn't engage with me. She was so afraid. She could play with the other dogs there, and that's how I got her to run up and down the hallway and chase things, but she wouldn't engage with me. She was so scared that when um, a couple of staffers wheeled a cart down the hallway while we were playing the first day, she just peed right there. And I remember thinking, this dog and I <laughs> are going to have a long history together. And I picked her up at the end of playtime to carry her back in her cage. She didn't want to go. And I knew that we were going to get her out. And several months later, she had finished her experiments in the laboratory, and they called me up and asked me if we wanted to adopt her. And walking out of the lab that day um, with Violet and putting her in our car and driving away was probably the greatest experience of my life. It also changed my life completely because Violet didn't know how to be a dog. And what about the other dogs that were there? Were they adopted as well? 
Um, some of them were, yes. This lab had a policy that allowed adoption, but they could only adopt to people who volunteered to adopt, and they didn't advertise um, the adoption process. So if dogs weren't adopted out, then they would be enrolled in terminal studies. Oh, my gosh. So if we hadn't taken Violet, How did you even she find would have died. out about the lab? Word of mouth. Can you say where the lab's located? I can say that it is in this area. We live and we're in, in Washington, D- the Washington, D.C. area. Yes, we live in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I can say it's completely underground. Um, I can tell you what they did um, to Violet. Um, she was used as a, kind of like a test dummy for surgical techniques. So they'd knock her out um, and test the technique on her and then wake her back up and feed her. And the thing that they put in her would pop out. And then she was enrolled in a study for human pharmaceuticals. Oh, my gosh. And how long was she in the program? She was lucky. She was only there for a year. Um, but I will tell you, just a year on a dog like Violet, it it took her a good two and a half to three years to adapt to life outside of the lab. And so where did they find Violet? Breeder. Yeah. Violet and her brother and sister dogs in the laboratory um, were all bred for research. Wait, bred by the lab? Or bred by a breeder for the lab. Bred by a breeder for the lab. Stop it. There are companies, multi-million dollar companies, that exist solely to breed dogs and cats for use in experimentation. Mm-hmm. And we have some of the receipts. The thousands every year. Yeah, not for Violet, but, but White Coat Waste Project has some of the receipts government agencies have received for the purchase of these amazing creatures. Yeah, it's big business. That is just astounding. So is this how you got involved in the advocacy side? I had been in, involved in White Coat Waste Project for a few years. This came because of my involvement in White Coat Waste Project. I see. I see. Well, what, I, I, I want you guys to back this up for us because, I mean, when, when did this, when, when was White Coat Waste established? Who started this? Who explained the, the mission of the organization and wind us back a little bit, if you will, for the, the history. Sorry, I got carried away. <laughs> I know this. I mean, and thank you for leading us in with well, the story of a real dog because that's that's what this is all about. As a pet owner, I think I think Justin's story is a bit more cerebral. Mine is a bit more emotional. Um, as a pet owner, I became involved in White Coat Waste Project one day when I was sitting in the ugliest Dunkin' Donuts in the world, crying and traumatized because the day before I had lost a beloved pet. And I checked my phone and saw that a friend of mine, someone I went to grad school with at George Washington University named Anthony Bellotti, had just started this organization called White Coat Waste Project to end government funding for animal testing. And I had always felt like a consumer advocate um, for ending animal testing in the sense that I deliberately sought out and would only spend my money on things that didn't test on animals. So I emailed him right away and said, how can I get involved? And within a year, he and I were rescuing dogs from labs. I'm not even sure our listeners know and or realize that animal testing is still happening in the United States, right? I mean, I would say as a, as a layperson on this issue, someone who loves animals but doesn't isn't, doesn't have awareness about this or hasn't until I worked with you guys. I think this is going to be shocking, just the fact that it's happening in the U.S. Do you agree, Karen, that this could be shocking to the average pet lover? No, I absolutely agree. And I think equally shocking is the fact that the United States government is using taxpayer dollars yeah. to experiment on animals in antiquated experiments, as I understand. Yeah, I think most people are under the impression that the animal testing problem is 
caused by cosmetics companies or right. pharmaceutical companies, and certainly they played their role. Um, but in the United States, the government is the market maker. So two-thirds of all animal testing in the United States is funded by our tax dollars to the tune of about $20 billion a year and about 100 million animals in labs. So taking a taking a cue from Gene here, step back. So who figured this out? Was it Anthony? Did Anthony figure out that this is, a, this is our pressure point? It's the taxpayer dollars? He had spent his career in politics, and he figured he couldn't solve all animal testing issues. The one he wanted to focus on was the government um, spending on animal testing. The government's created the marketplace on it. So if you can cut the spending, then you can end the suffering. And that's how he also connected with Justin, who had been working on um, anti-vivisection issues for a huge chunk of his career. Yeah, so I spent the last 15 years of my life uh, running grassroots campaigns and policy campaigns to end animal testing. And actually, I got started when I got to the University of Connecticut in 2004 for graduate school. I forget how exactly it happened, but I came across some government records that showed there were monkeys at the university in a laboratory. And I asked around and no one had ever heard about it before. So I just kind of made it my cause to figure out what was happening and to stop it. So I learned how to use the Freedom of Information Act to request records. I've made friends with state legislators. Uh, and fast forward two years, we ended these experiments that had gone on for over a decade where they were taking monkeys, uh, drilling holes in their head, destroying parts of their brain, and then killing them uh, to uh, damage the part of the brain that controls their eye movements. Uh, it was basic curiosity-driven research. It wasn't saving anyone's lives. It was just providing a paycheck to some staffer at the university. Was uh, that government funds? Yeah, that was government. Yeah, that was government funded. It was funded by the National Institutes of Health, uh, and we launched a grassroots campaign. Worked with legislators, uh, and fast forward two years, ended the project. It got shut down. They had to even return some of the money back to the government because of all the abuses that had happened. And after that experience, I had never done any type of advocacy or activism before, but it was very empowering. I was in a PhD program. I thought I was going to go into academia and make change there. And I thought, no, that's way too slow and boring. Uh, I want to be on the ground, mixing it up, uh, you know, stopping this stuff now when it's happening, when the abuses are taking place. Um, so I went to work in, you know, in, on campaigns against animal testing. Uh, and I was at PETA for a decade running their campaigns. And then I met Anthony and thought what he was doing was so uh, groundbreaking and unique and important, taking an old issue and framing it in a new way. I mean, the animal testing problem in the United States dates back to the 1880s. It really it was the first campaign, one of the first campaigns that people who cared about animals took up in the United States. Besides uh, the treatment of horses and carriages, it was vivisection. People were just outraged because they would do public demonstrations where they take dogs and inject them with stuff in public squares and people would just come to see the spectacle of it. And the more that got out, people were enraged by that. And that's kind of what launched the animal protection movement in the U.S. So it's not a new issue, but the idea of connecting it to the government spending part of it, that we're all involved, we all have a say, we all can help make a difference is what was so exciting and unique. Uh, and that was three years ago. 
I think it's worth noting that no animals will be harmed in the creation of this podcast, but you might hear a little whining or even a bark because, of course, we do have my two dogs here in the room with us. Well, I think the subject matter is very upsetting to them, Jean. It is upsetting. It's also upsetting when Daisy doesn't get petted absolutely constantly. So congratulations. Congratulations, you guys. This is now your part-time job in addition to your uh, full-time efforts to protect animals from government-funded testing. Justin, thank you for that that background. Go ahead. You had something more to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think most people would be stunned to hear that there were 60,000 dogs locked in laboratories in the U.S. right now, uh, that they're being bred specifically for that in places probably right in the backyard of folks who don't realize it's there and that we're the ones footing the bill for it, even though a majority of Americans now oppose this. And we know more than ever that it's incredibly wasteful and inefficient. Um, so whether it's for ethical, uh, economic or scientific reasons, this is really a transition that should be happening away from animal testing. But because it's been such a big business, it's been hard to crack it. And I, I want to get back to Violet for a second, because these animals can be rehabilitated. Just because Violet was in the laboratory for a year doesn't mean that she is not a loving pet. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's even more heartbreaking that these animals still want to be with someone. They are so trusting. We we break their bodies, but we haven't broken their hearts. And they still love and they still trust. And I'll say Violet's case, every dog is different. Every cat is, every animal is different. So her story and the struggle she went through to learn how to be a dog are going to be so different from every other dog story coming out of a laboratory. It just happens that she was um, a slightly more extreme case, a, a little bit harder and a little bit slower to get her to adapt. But from the very moment we brought her home, she was loving and trusting. This this is reminding me of a recurring theme on this podcast, actually, where we talk about uh, how a dog is created and the genetics that have gone into the breeds that we love. And also, of course, the behavioral aspect and, and what, what environment we provide and what training we provide for our dog. And we know that that both are critical in the in what makes the dog who he or she is. So that's very interesting. I'm actually curious if you guys know. To get back to your earlier point about breeders participating in this, what what what, what does that mean? What what's a good dog? What's a good breed for experiment and uh, torture? Oh, well, yeah, we do hear yeah. about beagles a lot, the right? NIH, Why is that? Yeah, well, the NIH on its so the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is the single largest funder of animal experimentation in the world. Um, just them alone, they are probably spending about $18 billion a year on animal testing right now. Um, their website says that they prefer beagles because they're small and docile. So basically because they're easy to abuse, that's why they pick on them. It's bullying. I mean, that's what that's what it is. They don't want a dog who's going to fight back. They want someone who's just going to take it. Um, and they take it until they can't take anymore. And that's what happens to most of them. Um, you know, there's been research on, done on PTSD and other animals besides humans. It's been documented in, uh, actually, a lot of the research has been done by my wife, who's a professor here in Arlington at Marymount, um, but PTSD in other primates, so chimps and monkeys, uh, and also in dogs. Uh, and there's extensive research showing that dogs coming out of these labs have all the landmark symptoms of PTSD. And Julie mentioned a great one, which is hearing the, the metal car rolling by. So animals, you know, dogs know that the metal car rolling by or someone coming in the room usually means something bad's going to happen to them. So then that's a trigger. That's a trigger for them. That The jingle of keys triggers her. Um, oh. The sound of garbage bags being pulled out of the garbage triggers her, yeah. And what, ha- what does she do when, what, what's her, what happens to her 
Is she just nervous? She gets taken over by anxiety um, and basically follows us around barking. We can't get her to calm down, not with treats, and we've tried a bunch of different behavioral modifications, but it's her anxiety coming out. But to to a point that was, uh, made, I think you made earlier, Karen, uh, all the research shows that dogs who are lucky enough to get out of laboratories are almost in every case perfect animals to have in your house. They're affectionate. They are uh, well-behaved. They just want to please. They're just perfect little angels if they're lucky enough to get out. The truth is that most of them don't. Um, and part of our work at White Coat Waste Project is holding the government accountable for doing that, certainly in terms of cutting the funding, but making sure that whenever there is a dog or any other animal who survives an experiment, that they should have the opportunity to have the life that Violet has. And actually, Violet's story inspired a national campaign that uh, nearly a million and a half people wrote to Congress because of Violet's story and got them to introduce a bill called the AFTER Act, which actually requires federal agencies to have policies in place allowing the adoption and retirement of dogs, cats, monkeys, and other animals at the end of research instead of just being killed reflexively because it's cheaper and easier. All that from one POSGO blog post. (laughs) Right. POSGO is the catalyst for positive change. So what's the status of that bill, Justin? Uh, The House bill has about 50 bipartisan co-sponsors and everything, you know, what also makes us different than some of the other organizations that work on these issues is that we are truly bipartisan. And I don't mean a hundred Democrats to one Republican on a bill. I mean a real mix of members from all ends of the political spectrum who care for either animal welfare reasons or government accountability reasons or whatever the case may be. So the AFTER Act in the House has about 50 co-sponsors right now. Um, The Senate version was introduced a couple months ago by Susan Collins uh, in the Senate and Martha McSally and Gary Peters. And those bills are, are in committee, so they've been referred to committees. They're being considered, but they've already had You know, legislation is a means to an end. Sometimes you don't need to get a bill passed. And I know you both know this really well coming out of politics, but I think people outside think if a bill doesn't pass, the thing didn't happen. Right. Um, But sometimes the legislation is just a tool to show the agency that if you don't do this on your own, you're going to be forced to do it. Uh, And soon after this bill was introduced in National Institutes of Health, again, which experiments on more animals and spends more money than any other agency, uh, instituted a policy allowing the adoption of animals out of its laboratories now. So next steps for us is holding them accountable and making sure that when those opportunities do arise, they take advantage of them. But I still think it's important that the legislation pass. Oh, absolutely. And because the NIH is one of over a dozen agencies experimenting on animals. Um, So if people are interested in getting involved, they could visit violetslaw.org and write Congress directly about this bill. And we'll post it as well. Yeah. So to make it easy for our listeners to find a link to that legislation. What is the mission of your organization put most simply? What is the what is, what's the a perfect world look like to white coat waste? If, if if there were no reason for you to exist anymore, what would the world look like? Taxpayers would not be forced to fund animal testing that they're morally opposed to. And that would eliminate most animal testing in the United States. And You know, our challenge kind of for people who say, well, we need to do this stuff is we say, well, let private companies then make the decision to do that and let consumers support those companies or not. You have a choice to boycott with the government. We're just being forced to pay for something that most people oppose and a growing majority oppose from all ends, again, all ends of the political spectrum. Um, So this is a again, this is a just about 
democracy and making sure people are supporting what they want. So what are some of the more egregious ways that the federal government is using animals in experimentation? What, what are we paying for that really, really burns you up? Um, well, since we're on the topic of dogs, one of our main campaigns has been ending experiments on dogs by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, the VA, until recently, was the only government agency performing what we call maximum pain experiments on dogs. Uh, and this is experiments in which they inject latex into dogs' arteries to induce heart attacks and then force them to run on treadmills to stress their damaged hearts. Why? Again, this is basic curiosity research that it you know it kind of gets approved and then gets rubber stamped over and over and people it becomes institutional it becomes institutionalized you know and there there's lab space there's people whose careers depend on it and it just the inertia keeps it going uh when we started our campaign in 2016 there were four different VA hospitals across the country experimenting on dogs we've knocked out three of them and tell us where Los Angeles, they were breeding Dobermans to have narcolepsy and then injecting them with methamphetamines. We got them to stop. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Milwaukee, they were drilling into dogs' heads and destroying parts of their brains that and control this is breathing. Veterans Administration. This is the Department of Veterans Affairs, correct. Uh, Milwaukee, Cleveland, they were severing dogs' spinal cords. And Richmond is where they're, so we've knocked out those three. Richmond is where they're still doing several different iterations of those heart attack experiments. Um, there has been progress, though. When we started the campaign two years ago, there were six different projects at Richmond. Right now, there's only three. We've gotten state legislation uh, enacted last year to ban state funding for the most painful types of uh, dog testing uh, within the within the state of Virginia, and that knocked out some of the VA experiments. Um, so there's been enormous progress uh, thanks to bipartisan leadership in Congress uh, on the federal level and also in the state house in Virginia. Wasn't there something about my, or hamsters drinking wine? Wasn't there? <laughs> there was that. So, yeah, something I think we were. that was one of Anthony's favorites, the hamsters <laughs> drinking wine. Yeah, there's, I mean, the mind reels if I told you the type of, I mean, right now, uh, Taxpayers in the U.S. are funding experiments in England where they're addicting zebrafish to nicotine. Um, I mean, if don't you d- we know that nicotine's addictive? We I mean, do know that it's not 1968. The FDA until until last year, the, the the United States Food and Drug Administration was addicting monkeys to nicotine. They spent five million dollars recently. We got them to shut it down. We worked with Jane Goodall. We got them to shut it down, and the FDA sent those monkeys uh, to a sanctuary in Florida that we worked with not only to get 26 monkeys rescued and sent down there, but also the government sent a million and a half dollars to, to cover their lifetime care uh, down at the sanctuary in, in uh, Gainesville, Florida. So there are happy endings, but the truth is is that the problem is so big, wherever you look, you're going to see this type of waste and abuse. Um, so we certainly have these certain, you know, lightning rod issues like the monkeys, nicotine monkeys or the dogs at the VA. Um, but those are really symptoms of a, a bigger problem. How far do we have to go to get this fixed? All of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I'm sure at this point in, in the, the show, I'm sure listeners are wondering, what can they do to help? So first of all, go to violetslaw.org. Take action, write Congress, tell them you think all the dogs like Violet should be adopted out when research ends. Um, after you sign up for that and take that action, you'll then be on our mailing list so we can keep you posted on whatever you want to work on. But more than any other issue I see in the animal world, I feel like the, this is tractable and that we have the momentum to actually win. And if you look at landmarks from other social justice causes, uh, if you look at 
gay marriage or marijuana or former criminal justice reform, when you start to get above 50% of people supporting an issue and you start to get above uh, close to half of Republicans as well on some of these traditionally left issues, that's when you really start to get momentum. And we have that right now on the animal testing issue. More people oppose animal testing than oppose wearing fur. You know, I think that probably might come as a surprise to people. But this is an area where we have a lot of momentum. And just last month, for the first time in history, we had a federal agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, announce a plan to completely end animal testing by 2035. No agency, no private company, no one has ever made that type of commitment. That's still 15 years. It's it's 15 years. Yes. I mean, give me a break. 15 years? (laughs) Well, they have certain benchmarks set for 2025, a 30% reduction, a drawdown by 2025, which again, for the animals in in those labs, that's a hell of a long time. But it shows the type of momentum we have and that there now is the political will to make those type of decisions that may have been uh, more unpopular before. Um, but we're seeing the type of changes we want to see, those those commitments that we can now hold government accountable for following through on. Um, but we're, you know, obviously we've gotten dogs out of the VA, we've gotten cats, cats out of the USDA, we've gotten monkeys out of the FDA lab. So animals are being saved as we speak. Um, I, w- I wish I could snap my fingers. <laughs> could, we, could, we, could we see the end of this in five years, 10 years? What, you seem quite hopeful, and there seems to be a lot of progress that we've made. How, how quickly can we really solve this problem realistically? I'm optimistic. I've been doing this for 15 years, and I've seen, you know, I've seen the movement build. I've seen the interest. I've seen the political will to be proactive and get in front of this issue in a way I've never seen before. Uh, and again, this is a very bipartisan issue. I'm talking about you know, lawmakers, whether it's on the state or federal level, on the left and the right, seeing this as a good issue, uh, not only politically, but it's the right thing to do. Um, so it really checks every box. I think in the next five years, we could see the end of testing on dogs and cats and primates and the animals who, you know, for better or for worse, people care most about it right now. So I want to bring it to the pussy cats, <laughs> And I think, Julie, you've got some very special house guests that I think Violet's helping you with. She has helped me out a lot with them. Can you tell us about Petite and is it Delilah? And Delilah, yeah. Petite and Delilah and a little bit about how you got Petite and Delilah and and White Coat Waste's big win for them. Sure. Well, um, several months ago, we were we were blessed to be able to foster two cats coming out of the USDA um, kitten experiments, which you have this lovely mug sitting in front of you right now, Karen, that outlines the USDA kitten experiments. The USDA was um, funding experiments that um, well, basically fed kittens cannibalized meat from dogs and cats in Asia and infected them with a parasite and then killed them at 10 weeks old. And the two cats that are living with us right now, Petite and Delilah, were breeders in the lab for that program. They are the most wonderful family pets. It didn't take them very long to adjust to family life at all. Um, They're great around other dogs, and they have these wonderful maternal instincts. Delilah is what I like to call a heck and chonker. She's a big girl. She's six (laughs) years old. She's white with gray spots and a pink little nose, and her job in life is to make sure every single human has a clean face. Aww. (laughs) So every human she meets... um, 
as soon as she has the chance, she's going to crawl up in their lap and lick their face until it is absolutely clean. I think that's why I don't have to go for facials anymore because I have <laughs> Delilah at home cleaning my face multiple times a, a day. exfoliation there. Her friend Petite is just like her name. She's a little girl. She feels like a she feels like a book, like a paperback book when I pick her up. Um, and she's the kind of cat who just wants to crawl up next to you on the couch and sit there with you for hours getting belly scratches and chin scratches. They crave human love and attention. And these two cats, your two foster cats, first of all, they're available for adoption. Yes, they are. But they were raised in a laboratory. They spent their whole lives in the lab together. And they would have kittens, and the kittens would be taken away from them, and then the kittens would be experimented on and killed. Yeah, so Delilah is interesting because... Um, when we were able to adopt her, our white coat, the white coat family was able to adopt her. Julie obviously has her in her house. Um, we learned that Delilah was related to the original cats from the, the very start of that experiment in the 1960s. Yeah. So, so this a is a project year old project. This is a 50 year old project that just since the early eighties has killed over 3000 kittens. And just to give a little more information. Um, so basically there was a project where they were breeding about a hundred kittens every year, right in Beltsville, Maryland, Beltsville, Maryland. Inside right. If you know where the, the Ikea DC is area. in college park, Maryland, it's right across the street from that. And, um, they had these breeders. So Delilah and Petit and other breeders, they would breed a total of about a hundred kittens each year. And then they would feed the cats bad meat that was infected with toxoplasmosis parasites. Um, this included USDA staff with our tax dollars flying to China and other countries in Asia, going to dog and cat meat live markets and slaughterhouses, buying animals, having them slaughtered there, putting their tissues in their carry-on luggage. Stop it. Bringing it back and then force-feeding these kittens the dog and cat meat. Why? Because there was money there to do it. So the guy that ran this project... He's in the USDA Hall of Fame, is that right? <laughs> he is. He is. Right? That, I'm not making so that up. So this is right? someone this is a celebrated experimenter who had a long career at the USDA, was very well liked, and just happened to be torturing and incinerating kittens. And feeding them and feeding slaughtered cat dogs and cats from so, a, that they brought over in their carry on luggage. And even, it's like, yeah. even after nine eleven? Yeah. This yeah. <laughs> I so this, so this is, carry on. you know, and keep in mind, I mean, this is happening while Congress is trying to take action to shut down those dog and cat meat farms in China, right. passing resolutions to yeah. stop it. At that exact same time that's happening, there are government employees flying over with our tax dollars and spending our tax dollars to support those very dog and cat meat farms and slaughterhouses. And this went on for 50 years until we exposed it in early 2018 worked with Congress, and then in April of this year, after a year-long campaign, the USDA announced it was shutting down the program and adopting all the cats out, and we were lucky enough to bring two into the White Coat family. Are you sure it shut down? 
I'm as sure as I can be. Yeah. And we, you know, we, whenever something like this happens, we very closely monitor this. So we continue putting in records requests to see if any new purchases were made and if any new experiments were approved. Um, but basically the acknowledgement was finally made after a year long campaign that we don't really need to be doing this anymore. <laughs> this was something in the sixties that maybe had some value. And we worked with veterinarian research, veterinary researchers who looked at all the research and came to the conclusion that this was unnecessary. Not only was it unnecessary, but all those kittens who'd been killed, those 3,000 kittens had been killed, were perfectly healthy and could have been adopted out. Most kittens, especially strays who are coming into shelters, have been exposed to toxoplasmosis because they've eaten a mouse on the street. It very rarely is transmitted to humans. So, And we, shelters don't even test for it because they're not afraid of the community it being transmitted to humans yet the usda was using that as the excuse for to kill two-month-old because they so they'd feed them at eight weeks old they'd feed them the bad meat they'd collect their feces out of the litter box for two weeks and then they'd kill the cats so but so these were two-month-old kittens oh. who were perfectly healthy and they were just killing because it was easier than finding them homes until we stepped in exposed the whole program there was a ton of pressure from congress uh, both the house and the senate passed legislation targeting the the laboratory. And then, you know, ultimately in April, the USDA said mercy and shut the program down and let the cats out. How did you find out about this? Uh, through reviewing government databases for spending. And I noticed a purchase from the USDA of cats. And I thought, what's the USDA buying cats for? And that sent us kind of down the path to via some Freedom of Information Act requests. We got the records showing exactly what was happening. All the kittens being bred, the cats being the breeders being purchased. So Delilah was the progeny of the original cats in, from the 60s in this laboratory. But Petite was purchased a few years ago from one of these breeders we're talking about. Where they just breed animals specifically to sell them to labs to be tortured and killed. When you think about eight to 10-week-old kittens, they're you're thinking about kittens at the most kittenish the, stage of being a yeah, kitten. Yeah. I mean, that's that's... What Facebook is full of. Yeah. Eight to ten week old kittens doing cute things like seeing itself in the mirror. This is why the internet right? exists. Right. It yeah. is. It's cat videos. Yeah. These yeah. are the kittens. And that's why getting Violet's Law introduced was so important because we were seeing these isolated, these weren't isolated incidents. You know, the FDA addicting monkeys to nicotine unnecessarily and then what they ultimately have done killed the monkeys they didn't need to be doing that experiment and those monkeys didn't need to be killed same with the usda kittens they didn't need to be doing those experiments and those kittens could have been adopted out unfortunately we can't trust the government to do the right thing so we have to step in and intervene do you guys have what you need what 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 do you want from people who who want to get involved i mean you mentioned signing up for your mailing list essentially is that so that they can conduct their own outreach to elected officials is that so that they can donate money to the cause all of the above what what do you want from people who care about this so obviously donations are always very welcome they're tax deductible we're a nonprofit 501c3 organization uh, we get a lot done but we're very small we have uh, six full-time staff um, we have two and a half million people who take action on our campaigns who call Congress who are involved in different ways whether it's donating or um, contacting Congress um, but when you do enroll in our mailing list you'll see what other campaigns are going on you know the nice thing about the work we do focused on the taxpayer funding component of animal testing is that it's relevant to everybody. You don't have to be a customer of a particular company. 
uh, to weigh in on this. You have a congressional representative and their job is to listen to you and do what you want. Uh, they're not going to do that on their own. So you really have to make those calls and send those emails. And it matters. I mean, I'm on Capitol Hill every week. I have a colleague who's there almost every day. And those offices tell us we're hearing from your members about this and they want to know then what they can do to help um, so they can tell the people they represent that they're doing the right thing. Um, so, yeah, again, going to violetslaw.org, taking action there, visiting our website at whitecoatwaste.org. You can read more about what we're doing generally and, uh, again, take action, whether it's contacting Congress or giving money or whatever is comfortable for folks. Share this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure people will want to participate, and thank you for sharing all of that information. Uh, you know, Karen and I like to wrap each episode of the podcast with a pause up and pause down in terms of things that we see in the animal world that we like or don't like so much. And it's really tough today to not give my pause up to you guys. Can I do that? Can I give my pause up to oh. these guys? I mean, pause up to White Coat Waste. Thank you for the work that thank you, you so are doing. Much. Thanks. Do you want do you want to talk about other pause up and pause down, Karen? Well, yes, Jean, I do. I have other pause ups and pause downs. So, <laughs> so my pause down is related to white coat waste as well. And I'm going to pick on our home state of Virginia. I mean, come on, Virginia. Let's shut that VA dog experiment lab down. I mean, don't let California... Ohio and Wisconsin be ahead of us. It's time for Virginia to shut it down. Pause down, Virginia. My pause up, however, because I feel like this has been kind of a heavy conversation. Um, I learned a lot from Justin and Julie today, so thank you both for being here. My pause up has to do with dogs and health, and the American Heart Association has released a report saying that People who have dogs live longer than people who don't because dogs keep us healthy mentally as well as physically. And we all know, because we're all pet lovers, that they also keep us more social and engaged, which is a key to living a long and happy life. So pause up for the American Heart Association since we've talked about laboratories and experiments. Well, here's a, here's a medical publication and a medical community that gets a pause up for sharing some good news about dog ownership. Thank you, Karen. That's, that's a great pause up. That's, that's really nice. And you're right. We know it's true. And it's nice to have the scientific backing to illustrate what we feel in our everyday lives about how dogs improve our lives uh, mentally, physically, socially, and all the rest. I did have a pause down this week that I did want to share because on one of my many dog walks, uh, I walked by a yard where this has probably happened to you, where a dog comes out of nowhere, uh, ac- running across a yard, barking like crazy. I'm quite startled. I, I think I'm going to have a dog fight on my hands and I'm pulling my dogs, you know, to the other side of the street, probably risking getting hit by a car. I mean, it's, you know, those moments where you just are startled, you're trying to get away. You don't know if the dogs will fight. And this dog that was charging weirdly stopped at the, you know, at the sidewalk. And it took me a minute to figure out what was going on there. It was an invisible fence. And so not only was it alarming for me and my dogs, then of course I feel sad for that dog because uh, I think the invisible fence is not, I have to give a pause down to invisible fences in general. And I happened to witness one this week. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we talked about this with Sandy on a previous podcast, uh, our uh, behavior specialist. It's negative 
reinforcement. The dog does experience pain to train, to train that dog to find the borders of the yard does involve hurting the dog. But for those of you who think, oh, well, it's still so convenient that it's worth it. I don't want to build a regular fence. Keep in mind, if your dog ever breaks through that invisible barrier, which this dog almost did, it was so excited by my dogs. If your dog ever breaks through that invisible barrier, why would your dog want to come back? Okay, say there's a squirrel or other dogs and gets really excited. Then you've got a dog who's on the other side of a barrier and with no incentive to cross over that painful line. And then you have a lost dog as well. So, so pause down, pause down to that. Um, but pause up again to White Coat Ways. We really appreciate you guys being here and, and pause up to all the, the good behavior that I'm also seeing on dog walks. And I had several interactions on other walks this week with neighbors who will stop and gather and we'll talk about how we live with our dogs and how we train our dogs. And, and those positive interactions happen every day too when I'm out and about with my dogs being healthy as the American Heart Association <laughs> proves and being social. Do our guests have uh, any pause up for us? Sure. I've got to pause up. Um, if you want to read more about Violet's story, you can, of course, go on Pause Go. But there's also a section about her in a book on rescue dogs that was just released. Um, you can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. It's nice. called Rescue Dogs by Pete Paxton with Jean Stone. So check it out for Violet's story and the stories of other inspirational dogs. I'm going to pause up EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler for making history by being the first government official to ever institute a ban on animal testing. Uh, It's good for animals. It's good for the environment. It's good for taxpayers. It's something everyone, no matter what their feelings on the administration are, should get behind and support because it's the right thing to do and it's going to benefit all of us. I'll give him a four pause up if he can do it in under 15 years. (laughs) Yeah. Not to rain on your That would be like there. a flying dog, <laughs> right? a jumping oh, dog. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, this is the, the podcast, a positive conversation about pets and the people who love them. It was great to have you guys back. We'd love to have you on the show when uh, you, you reach your next victory or if you need grassroots support. The work you're doing is important, so please stay in touch. And we'd love to have you back if you'd care to join us again. Thank you. We'd be honored. Karen, thank you for being here with me every every time. Uh, we really we always learn something new, and we we always end up uh, you know feeling like we're doing an important work by by bringing more education to the dog community about issues that are important. And of course, you know we feel good about being pet owners. So thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you, Jean. And I think that today's podcast is going to be something that our listeners are going to be talking about for a while. So just know we'll have all the resources for folks linked to it. Thanks everyone for being here today. It was a great conversation. Until next time.